If you have your Bibles, please turn them to Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or have only heard of you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Good morning. Morning. Is that it? That's it. All right. <laughs> My daughter is in this cute phase right now where everybody who stands up here, she goes, who's that? <laughs> and I'm sure some of you are probably asking the same question. Who's that? <laughs> I am not Eric. I am Eric with a duh. Uh, if you're visiting with us, it is good <laughs> for you to be with us this morning. Uh, it is um, a great opportunity that I, uh, that I always like to take advantage of if I have the opportunity to preach uh, when Eric is not here, and so you get me this morning. Uh, if you're in your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, we're going to spend a, a bulk of our time here this morning, but uh, I wanted to share something with you. When I was younger, and if you were in the young families class this morning, you learned just how much of a rebel I was as a young boy. Um, but I was so much a rebel uh, when I was a kid that I did not like to go along with the common threads of favorite colors, uh, red, blues, greens. I went instead with camouflage. Um, growing up in the Air Force, my dad, of course, was in the Air Force, and so I was very familiar with the BDUs that they wore. In fact, he passed along a lot of the the uniform pants that he used to wear to me when I was in high school, and so I thought I was the coolest guy ever because I had camo pants, and now you can get them in any shade you want. In fact, you can get camouflage in reds, blues, greens, purples, etc. these days. But when I was in college, I got the opportunity to go on a summer campaign to Scotland, and I quickly learned that my favorite color was not camouflage, it's plaid, as we would say. Um, more specifically, the Wallace Dress Blue Tartan is my favorite. So if you ever see that in scarf or sock or uh, kilt form, please send it my way. Um, camouflage is a very interesting concept. There's a lot of research that goes into it, a lot of development that goes into it. If you're familiar at all with camouflage of our military, it has changed a lot over the years. It has gone from uh, what looks like random spots of paint all over a uniform to more specific either tiger stripe formations or a digital camouflage, if you will, which I, when that first came out, I thought, what are they trying to hide from? What pixels are they trying to hide from with this digital camouflage? Well, that's when the research and understanding of camouflage became a little bit more present for me um, because, you know, traditional camo uh, is full of just the beautiful uh, shades of olive, drab, green, uh, brown, and black. And I, I don't know about you, but man, a, a beautiful bouquet of flowers of that would just be wonderful. 
hunting camouflage has come a long way. Right? There's things called real tree camouflage now. They adapted a new technology that allows them to actually imprint the imagery of trees and, and brush and different foliage depending on the season in which you're hunting. If you hunt, you know that you've got a special closet just for your hunting camo and you have another closet for your regular clothes because depending on how often you hunt, you may need different camouflages for different seasons, for different settings, different things that you're hunting. This whole idea of camouflage came around with the military. And it started back during the First World War, and uh, the French uh, were the ones who actually adopted it. Uh, the color and the pattern of the camouflage was important for whatever setting they were in. Whatever environment they were going to be in, uh, the, the camouflage had to fit that. Um, the power of the design, though, is found not necessarily in the colors, but the broken pattern of how the colors shift and change from different shades. That's why when the digital camouflage came out, it was more important because there was more breaking in the patterns for them to blend into whatever surroundings they were in. A solid color has more of a tendency to stand out than broken lines. In 1915, the French army came out with this idea and started using it again in, the world, in world War I. Um, and the word itself is a French word, that's why it's spelled funny. Uh, it means to make up for the stage. In other words, it's a trick or a show. This reminds me of a word that perhaps you've heard in the Bible. Jesus said it often, but that word is hypocrite. This is a person who doesn't practice what they preach, to use a, a phrase that we use today. A person who claims a particular belief or stance and has actions that don't back those things up, they are a hypocrite. It's a strange word that might not make sense unless you know the word's background. And if you know me, you know that I like words and I like understanding where they came from so that I can better understand what they mean, both in the context of which they were written, but also how it applies to me today as well. Just before Jesus came into the world during the first century BC, this word hypocrite uh, came into the Greek language and it was used to refer to the actors that would play a part on the stage. It's a compound word in the Greek, meaning an interpreter from underneath. Underneath what? What could one interpret from underneath? Well, in Greek theater, they wore masks. If you've ever seen the smiling mask and the frowning mask together, that was, the Greek, uh, that was a Greek makeup there. Um, thespians uh, fit into that category. And actors would regularly wear masks to disguise who they are so that they could play multiple parts in a, in a play. They could blend in to whatever scene. They could be whatever character they needed to be because they hid under a disguise. In high school, I was a theater nerd, and there weren't a lot of guys who did theater because it wasn't the cool thing to do, right? So oftentimes, I would have to play multiple male roles in a play, which meant I had to wear different costumes, I had to wear hats or wear a mask, and change my voice sometimes to be able to play that role and not give away that I was another role at the same time. So I guess you could say that as a younger kid, I was a hypocrite. However, that word has taken on a very different meaning, thanks to Jesus and how he described the Pharisees using this word in Matthew chapter 23. It no longer refers to actors who wear different masks on a stage. 
Jesus criticizes the party of the Jews of merely being players on a stage. They weren't practicing what they preached. They were not living the life they should have been living, and thus they were blending into the world around them more than they realized. They thought their more holier-than-thou attitude kept them separate, but what was really happening was that their lack of love and kindness made them look opposed entirely to the God they claimed to serve, and thus they just merely blended into their world. They had a mask on. They were playing a character. They were camouflaged. Camouflage and hypocrisy have no place in the church. I'm not talking about the clothing, right? You can wear your camo to church on Sunday if you want. I don't, I don't care one way or another. I'm not talking about actors on a stage. We don't have actors up here. I'm not an actor. I'm just teaching the word. What I mean is Christians have always had to walk the line of living in the world and not being of the world. Paul challenged the Roman Christians with this statement in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. Context is important, right? So if you go back just one verse before that, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now that last word, your translation may have worship there, but the word refers to a life of service, which some, it's hard for some to understand, honestly, and that's a, that's a topic for another day. But Paul is urging the church to present themselves as a living sacrifice for God, which seems like a reasonable response to what Jesus did for us in dying on the cross. He gave up his life for us. Why aren't we willing to do the same for him? I'm not just talking about physically dying for Christ, which if it comes to that, yes, we need to do that. But I'm talking about giving up the things we think we want or the things that we need in order to follow Christ. Being a living sacrifice means they refused to conform to what the world was doing, but rather were transformed into what God wanted. They would reject the camouflage that caused them to blend into the world, but instead they would shine like a light in the dark night as they stood out for Jesus. It was a decision that had to be made in their hearts, which would lead to a change in their actions. That's sanctification, right? It's being set apart. It's being made to be holy, made to do what God designed us to do. For our discussion this morning, I'd like us to consider how we can better be lights in a dark world instead of hiding our light under baskets so as to blend in with society, to blend in with culture, our coworkers, our classmates, etc. Because that's easy to do. It's easy to put on the camouflage to blend in. It's harder to stand out. It's harder to shine the light because it goes against everything that culture tells us. It goes against everything society tells us. Jesus recognized this. In John chapter 17, verses 14 through 21, he prays, he prays for you. He prays for his apostles. He prays for me. He says, of the apostles, he says, I have given them your word. He's talking to God as he prays, and he says, The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. 
Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Have you ever reflected on this prayer that Jesus gives? He starts out praying for his apostles. He knows the challenges that they're going to face as soon as he leaves this world. He says, let them be sanctified in your truth. Let them be separate and apart and made holy based on your word, based on the word that I gave to them and that the the Spirit ultimately will also deliver them in all truth, the Bible says. But not just for them. I don't just pray for them, but I also pray for the ones who are going to believe in me because of their word, because of what they have said about me. Sanctify the apostles in the truth and sanctify those who believe in me because of their words, which is based in the truth. As we consider this morning how to be in the world and not of the world, let's turn to another of Paul's writings in Philippians chapter 1. Maybe you're there already. Philippians 1.27. Paul begins this letter to the Philippians by informing them about his current situation. He's in jail. But he still has an attitude of joy and confidence, even amidst that life situation that he found himself in. Prior to our focus this morning, Paul pins the words, To live is Christ, to die is gain. A statement to communicate how a continued life to serve the Lord and fulfill his purpose here. And that if his life were to be taken, he would gain his eternal reward. And with verse 27, Paul launches into a series of practical teachings concerning to live as Christ, how to live as a Christian in this world. For time's sake today, we're going to focus on Paul's exhortation and how it applies to us today. And and we want to seek as Christians, as, as a body of believers together, we are seeking to live sanctified lives. We are seeking to live holy and set apart for God's purpose. Or as Paul states it, living as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel. So as we examine these verses that we had read earlier, there are some general things and specific things that we should observe and apply. First, in verse 27, starts out very plainly, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We'll stop there. The phrase manner of life or conduct, your translation may have. The King James translates the word as conversation. In the Greek, the word is polytuomai, uh, and the root of it, you may hear, is poly, which is the root of politics. The word itself means to behave as citizens. Now, this word would have special meaning to those at Philippi because uh, Philippi is a Roman colony. And many of the people who lived in Philippi were former Roman soldiers who had retired and they got land. They were gifted land there in Philippi, and so they would transplant there. But to live in Philippi as a Roman citizen mean that they had to act as Roman citizens in order to spread the culture, spread their society within that region. It's the same thing that happened to Daniel when Daniel was ripped away from Jerusalem and taken in to, uh, to, to Babylon. Right? Their goal, the Babylonian goal for Daniel was to rip away everything that made him Jewish, everything that made him an Israelite, and make him a Babylonian. 
And right from the start, he said, nope, I'm not going to do that. We're going to do it God's way. And you could see, of course, throughout the book of Daniel, how Daniel was blessed in that. But those at Philippi, they were to live as citizens of Rome. Now, Paul applies this term, though, to the life of a Christian. Now, as, a, as, as an American, right, I was born in America, I, I live in America, and so my citizenship, my passport says that I am a citizen of the United States of America. But Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, again, a part of this whole conversation, he says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So though we may live on earth, though we may live in the United States of America, or though we may live in Texas, and I know there's a lot of pride about living in Texas. I even have a pen now that says, I live in Texas. I thought I, 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 thought I was the hottest thing ever. I got Texas license plate. I got a Texas driver's license now. I'm a Texan. I was told very quickly, I am not a Texan. <laughs> we'll get there. But to behave as citizens in this, right, we have to behave as citizens in a worthy manner, worthy manner of the gospel. Now, this implies that there is behavior that is not worthy of the gospel. Just as an American citizen who misbehaves in a foreign country, they would shed a bad reflection on his home country. I remember when I went over to Scotland, we were in England for a time, and I was not enjoying my time in England at all. I thought the people that, we, that, that were there were a lot ruder than the people in Scotland. The Scottish people were just loving and, and just, there was this, this aspect of hospitality that was there that just didn't exist where we were in England. And I made that known on my blog. And I got in trouble for that because the people who we were staying with there in England saw that blog and they were offended. They thought, are all Americans this arrogant? I was shedding a bad light not only on Americans, but on our group from Harding as well by stating those things. If an American citizen is in a foreign country and they commit a heinous crime, it makes headlines all over the world. The Apostle Peter would remind us the importance of our proper conduct as we sojourn here in our country, which is not our own. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, he says, Beloved, I urge you or beseech you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If we are not behaving as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel, then the only alternative is an unworthy manner. So what is, it, what is a manner worthy of, a go, of the gospel? Well, the gospel here is defining the worthy manner. The gospel is what teaches us what a worthy manner of living is. God's word, right? Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. The truth is your word. God's word is our guide. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17 goes into great detail about how profitable God's word is. It's everything that we need to go through life. It is our roadmap. And if we're not living according to that, what are we doing to the gospel? The gospel is what should direct our actions. It is the guide for how we should live as citizens. Our behavior as citizens is to be worthy 
with or without the presence of other Christians. Note here in, in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, whether I come and see you or am absent, whether I'm there or not, you need to be acting this way. Parents, how many of you said that about your kids? Whether I'm with you or not, you better behave yourself. The same thing is true here. Now, Paul evidently did not want their faith to be simply an environmental faith. Now, if you recall, a few months ago when I last preached, in referring to our young people, we talked about environmental faith and how the environment from home to world can be a drastic shift. And their faith, without proper roots, can quickly absorb the worldliness and their faith in God diminishes. What is an environmental faith? Well, it's, it's a faith that is totally dependent upon your circumstances, where you are, where you live, who you interact with. In other words, remaining faithful only while under the positive influences of one's home, only remaining faithful, only acting in a manner worthy of the gospel when you're at church for two hours a week, only doing so when you're at a Christian college or church camp. But if you take that person out of that environment, where's their faith? Are they living in a manner worthy of the gospel outside of those environments? Or are they simply wearing a mask? Are they simply camouflaging themselves to fit into whatever environment they may be in? Some signs of an environmental faith, praying in public, but not in private. Studying the Bible when you're at church, but not doing so when you're at home. A lack of personal closeness and dependence upon God and Jesus Christ. Or how about just simply acting one way around your Christian brethren in a completely different way around others? It sounds a lot like camouflage and hypocrisy, doesn't it? Paul's hope was that the Philippians' behavior as citizens was not dependent upon his presence. Now, for my personal life working in uh, secular work while I was also preaching, I had the opportunity to go on business trips with the company that I was working with. And we would regularly go to different events throughout the course of whatever uh, event we were at, and sometimes it would end up at a bar. And I would say, see you guys, I'm going back to the hotel. I wasn't doing it to bring any glory to myself, but that is not the, that's not the place that I need to be. It's not the place where I want to be encouraged. It's not the place that I'm going to be encouraged. It's a place that could lead to difficult situations that I don't want to be put in. We have to make tough decisions like that in life. And sometimes it means that we're going to be putting ourselves at odds with those that we care about, those that we spend a lot of time with. But shouldn't we be devoted to spending more time with God? Shouldn't that be our focus? Our behavior should not be dependent upon the presence of other Christians, but on the presence of Christ alone. We've been baptized into Christ. We wear Christ. We wear his name as a Christian. You don't get to take that mantle off and just live however you want to live whenever you want to. You don't get to just put a mask on and think that it's going to be okay. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Having considering these general observations about living as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel, let's look at some specific things concerning our conduct. In verse 27, Paul talks about standing fast in one spirit. Behaving as citizens involves standing firm. You've got to stand firm in something. You've got to stand firm against something, too. 
You have to stand firm against things that are going to draw us away from him. Things like the lure of the world in which we live, with its immorality and materialism, right? I talked about it with the kids up here a few weeks ago and using a fishing lure and how that fishing lure is specifically designed to encourage the fish to come up and bite it. Now, I also admitted at the time that I knew nothing about fishing, which caused Randy Taylor to take me fishing <laughs> so that I would know how to fish, I learned a lot that day. I learned a lot about how fish react to different lures and, and movements in the water. Sin is the same way. Satan knows exactly how to set the hook. He knows exactly how to draw us in. And as soon as we bite, he yanks that line back and that hook is set. And it is hard to get the hook out, especially if you swallow it deep in the gullet. I learned that the hard way. That fish took that hook really deep. That was hard. I got tore up by that fish. So did Randy because he, he was helping me because I didn't know what I was doing. But the, the point of the matter is, the lure of this world in which we live, the sin, materialism, it, is, it looks good. It looks good. But in the end, it is death. The sin of unbelief. This can strike at even the most mature Christians during crises of doubt, tribulation, and trials. Man, I know about that. The deceitfulness of false doctrines is another way in which we could be drawn away. False doctrines often show great promise, but they go against the word of God. They go against what we read in this. Against all these things, we have to stand firm. Note also that we have to stand firm in one spirit, of one mind. We're not to stand strong just by ourselves, but we have a whole body of brethren to, to lean on and rely on. The Christian life was not designed to be one of isolation. It was designed to be one of unity. And if the ladies who were at the ladies' day this weekend participated in the one event that I heard about, you understand what that means. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, ladies, tell your husbands, because it was a great, great exercise in what it means to be one and what it means not to be isolated. Unworthy conduct usually begins when we neglect our blessing of fellowship and togetherness. When we neglect being with our brethren, when we neglect our life together as Christians, that lure of sin becomes a lot easier to grab onto. The importance of unity in our conduct is developed further in the opening verses of chapter 2 here in Philippians. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. It's interesting. He says mind twice. He bookends it. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. You know, this living life as citizens, worthy in a worthy manner of the gospel, it involves doing so with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Behaving as citizens includes passionately promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to strive together. You have to have a goal. What's the goal? Tell everybody else about the, the wonderful hope that you have in Christ. Doing this in unity with other Christians, together with one mind, right? Our, our conduct is unbecoming of the gospel if we are not striving for the faith 
of the gospel. Our conduct is unbecoming of the gospel if we are not doing so in unity with our brethren. This is why it is so important for one to identify with a local congregation, to place their workmanship, as we call it here, or membership with a local congregation, to devote yourself to serving together, planting those roots, and growing together in the Lord. Are those who drift around from church to church, shifting their memberships, or maybe never even placing membership, are they truly behaving in a conduct worthy of the gospel? Again, we have to plant our roots. We have to grow together as we strive to live together as citizens of the kingdom of God in a manner worthy of the gospel. We say every week, this is the, bi- this is the book that we go by. No creed of man, no doctrines contrary to scripture. This is what we go by. We say it from the pulpit, but can you boldly proclaim it in your life? If not, get into it because it will change your life. It involves not being frightened in anything by your opponents. Verses 28 through 30 of chapter 1 talks about that. Christians walking in a manner worthy of the gospel will not be troubled by those who may ridicule or even persecute them. For even though the world may consider such fearlessness evidence that we are crazy, there is courage that we get that is evidence of our salvation. Consider Jesus' word in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 10 through 12. Blessed, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all things, all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets before you. There may come times when... We who have been granted to believe in Jesus are also privileged to suffer for his sake. Such was the case with Paul and evidently with the Philippians as well. But should it ever be the case that we have to suffer for Christ, we should remember that it will be a privilege to do so. Remember, our attitude should be like that of the apostles in Acts chapter 5, verses 41 through 42. And you, if you, if you want to see what, what the world thinks is crazy about living like Jesus, listen to these words. They were just standing before Uh, the council, and they were telling them, don't preach in the name of Jesus. And it says, we can do nothing but but trust God and speak what God says. They said they left the presence of the council rejoicing, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus, that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Think about that. You're arrested. You're held in front of a, a council of your, who you thought were your peers. And they say, don't do what you're doing anymore. It's bad. And then you leave and you're like, woohoo! We got to get in trouble for this. Yeah! Let's keep doing it. The world looks at that and says, that's crazy. That's what it means to live for Christ. That's what it means to live a sanctified life. That even if the world tells you that, that, that this is not true, that, that the things in here are just myths that some people made up a long, long time ago, which is completely ridiculous. That's a topic for another day. But even if the world is saying that, you stand firm in that. We were not created to fit in. 
We were not created to blend in, to wear a mask, or camouflage ourselves into the world. We were made to stand out. We were made to be set apart, to be sanctified, made holy for God's purpose. Our way of life needs to reflect that. Now, I've been doing this job for about four months now, and I've learned a lot from Eric in that time. It's great to sit at the feet of of a wonderful gospel preacher like Eric and learn great techniques. That was just the intro. Turn over to Luke chapter 9. Let's talk about application. How can we put this into work? Because we could talk about it all day. And it sounds good, right? We, we, could, we could talk about this so we're blue in the face, but putting it into practice, that's the hard part. I have a 3D approach to help you see this from the important angles that God wants us to consider. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus says here, he says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So, How are we to follow Jesus? How are we to live as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel? Here are the 3D angles. Number one, desire. I truly believe that this is the root of a lot of struggle that Christians have between kingdom living, kingdom parenting, kingdom-focused decisions, etc., and not doing the things that the world wants them to do. It all comes down to desire. Every single one of us, you, me, the other ministers, the, the, the elders, the deacons, everybody in this room, everybody watching online, we have to choose between what we want now and what we want most. If you're taking notes, write that one down. We have to decide what we want now against what we want most. Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, That walk with Jesus starts with a desire to follow him and depart from the world. It starts with a desire to be in the world and not of the world. It starts with a desire to not be conformed to this world. It starts with a desire to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You have to desire that. Jesus told many people to follow them and some refused. They didn't have the desire. Others followed the world because they wanted the things of the world more than they wanted Jesus. They chose to blend into the world's surroundings rather than to shine for Jesus. The rich young ruler is a great example of this in Matthew chapter 19. He didn't want to give up all his stuff to follow Jesus. Or how about Demas? Demas left the ministry with Paul because he loved this present world, it says in 2 Timothy 4. They walked away from a life with Jesus because they desired something more than they desired a relationship with Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, verse 24, just the next verse there in Luke 9, Jesus further comments that the person who desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What is there about your life? What is in your life right now that is not worth giving up in order to follow Christ? Is it money? Is it fame? Is it fortune? Is it your job? Is it popularity? Is it fitting in with your colleagues or your classmates? For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus gave his life on the cross. He died so that we could live. 
What are we not willing to let go of so that we can give our life to him wholly? That's the W-H-O, holy. That's the first D. We have to have a desire. Number two, we have to have denial. No, I'm not talking about living in denial. Though people in Egypt do. Sorry, that's a bad, that's a bad dad joke. Living in denial. Okay, in keeping with Jesus' attitude, we also must be willing to deny ourselves. What does that mean? Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 talks about an attitude of humility. Paul calls us to have the same mind as Christ himself. He humbled himself even to the point of the cross. We also choose to humble ourselves to live the life that he called us to in order to impact the world with the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the most powerful examples of this is found in John the Baptist. John the Baptist was sent to pave the way for Jesus. And when he first began his earthly ministry, he had a lot of people following him. But as soon as Jesus came on the scene, the disciples of John became worried that some of their friends were going to leave John and begin following Jesus. Now, we may look at that and think that's a silly thing to think, but we have the blessing of hindsight. For them, this is a significant shift. A lot of them had left behind the teachings of, of, of the Jewish leaders and followed the teachings of John, and now John's saying, stop following me, follow that guy, he's the Messiah. Boy, you want to talk about a dramatic life shift? You just went from following the, the guy who you thought could be the Messiah, who said that he wasn't, that he was just Elisha, he was paving the way, to now following the Messiah and what odds that puts you against with the rest of the people in the world that you were living in. That's a big shift. But John the Baptist explained it beautifully. He told him that he was just simply part of the supporting cast. He wasn't the lead actor in this. He said, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. John chapter 3, verse 20. Similarly, we have to understand that for Jesus to take complete control of our lives, we have to let go and give him the reins. Perhaps you've heard the saying, let go and let God. Yeah. The goal of Christian life is to let him, him have more of us each day. We have to decrease so that Christ can increase. So that Christ can increase in our life and Christ can increase in the life of those who we come into contact with. Shining the light of God. So to do this, we have to have both a desire and also daily taking up our cross and following him. That's the third D. There are crosses all across the United States. Shirts, jewelry, wall decor, and aisles 15 and 16 and Hobby Lobby on sale for 30% this week only. Just kidding. They're always on sale for 30%. Seems. You see fish on bumper stickers. You see fish in the, in the middle of these like hollow fish in, on the back of cars that are weaving in and out of traffic and cutting people off and, and speeding and breaking the law. You see, you see crosses there. You see crosses on pulpits. You see crosses on churches. You see crosses towering above highways all over the U.S. I remember specifically there was a large cross, probably the largest one I've ever seen, alongside the highway in Effingham, Illinois. And this was unironically the halfway point between Harding and home. Um, so my wife and I, we would regularly pass it when we were going back and forth to college. But it was a reminder for me that my life as a Christian isn't just something that I perform at home. It's not just something I perform at college. Though going to a Christian college certainly helps keep that focus, but it certainly didn't always stay there. 
It certainly didn't always stay there at home either. But it was a reminder that no matter what part of the journey you're on, Christ needs to be the focus. We know what the cross looks like, but, we, but do we know what the cross represents? The cross was not a trendy fashion statement or wall decor in the first century. It was a state-of-the-art form of killing. Most people that ended up on the cross spent their last hours of life in excruciating pain and humiliation. So when Jesus challenged his disciples to take up their cross, he wasn't talking about a symbol on a shirt or a hat or a necklace. Instead, Jesus was speaking of sacrifice. While his cross required him to die, it allowed our sacrifice to be one where we continue to walk the earth and impact the world with his story. That's what he told us to do in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 and following, to go into all the world and tell the good news of Jesus. Yet a sacrifice isn't a sacrifice until it hurts. Following Jesus requires letting go of some things that we want, or at least things that we think we want. It may require leaving behind people that we love. It might also mean giving up our time and our energy to kingdom living and service. Jesus says that this is not to be just something that you do one to three hours a week, depending on when you decide to worship at the local congregation. It's a daily sacrifice. Discipleship, following Jesus, isn't about giving God just one or two hours here and there. Discipleship is a daily commitment. Our dedication to Jesus impacts us in every facet of life. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul here again says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything that we do is to be glorifying to God. Everything that we do is in the name of Jesus. Carrying a daily cross is a sacrificial commitment. Paul summarizes this well in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, with words that were turned into a song that I sang growing up at church camp and in college. Perhaps you've heard it. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live in the fish by the name of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's an easy way to remember that verse, but it's also an important thing to remember in our daily life. We live in the flesh. We live by faith in the name of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He died for me. Why am I not willing to give up more for him? It's undoubtedly more difficult to blend into the world when walking around with a cross on your back. Yet the crosses that you commit to, or the cross, rather, that you commit to, that you commit to carrying daily, the living sacrifice that you become is a reminder to share the gospel message and live a changed life for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is rejecting the camouflage of the crowd. It's choosing instead to shine as lights in the world, not hiding it under a basket, but standing firm in your faith. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, that we need to shine bright. It may be that you're here this morning and you recognize the very urgent need to depart from the wicked ways of the world. Take off the mask that's hiding you 
If you desire to follow Christ, then this morning we ask that you deny yourself and you take up his cross. Are you willing to give up your life for him as he did for you? He's not asking you to physically die. He's not asking you to physically perish. But what he is asking you to do is to die to yourself, to die to a life of sin, be buried in the waters of baptism, and be raised to walk in a newness of life, a new creation, not living in sin, not chained to the bondage of sin, but chained instead to Jesus. Are you willing to do that? If we can assist you with that this morning, or perhaps... Perhaps you're a Christian and you've turned away from God. You've turned to camouflaging yourself, wearing a mask to blend back into the world rather than devoting yourself to following Christ and shining His light. If you wish to repent of that and be restored, or maybe, maybe you're here and you're looking for a congregation to place your roots and to grow together and to work in the service of our Lord. Or perhaps you just simply desire to study further about what all this means. If you want to study God's word and how it applies to your life and what it means to follow him daily, if we can assist you with that or any, any need that you have, now is the time that you can come forward while we stand and sing.